Hello world and welcome to the Overtone Warp Zone. This podcast is for people who enjoy games, love music, and want to know more about how their favorite songs work. In season one, we're taking a look at musical concepts found in pieces from Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. I'm Dan Bergman, and let's get started. You know what video game character comes to mind when I hear this song? Frankly, I don't know, but as of April 30, 2019, I now associate it with the one and only Blue Hedgehog, Sonic. By the release of this podcast, all this stuff is old news, but the first trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie came out a few weeks ago now, and the response was, to put it lightly, terrible. The number one critique was the appearance of Sonic. His iconic cartoony look was replaced with an uncanny valley level humanoid design. What I think is most incredible about all of this is that after seeing the response on social media, director Jeff Fowler stated on Twitter that the whole character would be redesigned for the film's release in November of this year with the hashtag gotta fix fast. <laughs> that is so funny. It's so incredible that the directors can respond to people in such a real and tangible way these days with social media. Either way, more power to the artists on the team. I'm sure the road ahead of you is not going to be easy. So this week is all about Sega and some of the blunders that they made in the years where they made consoles. I don't mean to hate on the company, but let's just say I haven't really been a fan in the last uh, 20 years or so. But hey, if you disagree, we're all entitled to our opinions. Let's take a brief look at the history of the company, and particularly its involvement in the console market. Before we do, let's enjoy some Smash Ultimate music. All of Sonic's 20 tracks in Ultimate, with the exception of Angel Island Zone from Sonic the Hedgehog 3, are taken straight from their original sources. That said, this is Emerald Hill Zone from Sonic the Hedgehog 2. The game was scored by Masato Nakamura. Sega has its origins all the way back in 1940, when a team of three, one of whom was a Sega founding member, Martin Bromley, formed Standard Games in Hawaii, providing coin-operated slot machines to military bases. The company was rebranded as Service Games after World War II, and took a hit when slot machines were outlawed in the US in 1951. So in 1952, the company went to Japan, rebranded as Service Games of Japan, and wrote the abbreviation SEGA on some of its machines. After some other changes in how the company operated, they became SEGA Enterprises Limited in 1965. Around this time, the company expanded to all kinds of coin-operated amusement machines, such as jukeboxes, pinball, and light gun games. These coin-operated games soon evolved into what we now know as arcade machines. Arcades had their heyday in the 70s and 80s, and Sega was right in the midst of it, and doing very well for themselves. There was, however, one hiccup in those couple decades. 
The inflation of the arcade market led to a crash in the early 80s. When Sega was deciding how to handle this, they decided they would get themselves into the home console market. Originally, they developed the SC3000 system, which was a home computer, but upon hearing that Nintendo was releasing a dedicated gaming console, they also worked on and released one of their own, the SG1000. This first home console by Sega sold over 150,000 copies. That's more than triple what they projected on their sales. Some of the reason for this is because of the steady stream of games that were released, and also because of a recall on Famicom systems in Japan when it was released. Perhaps there was something in this home market for Sega after all. Following a cosmetic upgrade in the SG-1002 in 1984, Sega released their Mark III, also known as the Master System, in 1985. Sales were, this time, underwhelming in Japan and North America, but the console sold well in Europe and especially Brazil. This part is absolutely insane to me. The console has been produced there by the company Tectoy up until 2015. That means that this console that was born in the 80s was in production for 30 years. That is the longest in history. After the Master System, the Sega Genesis was released, 1988 in Japan and 89 in North America. Outside of North America, the Sega Genesis was called the Sega Mega Drive. This console didn't perform well in most places in the world except for North America. Its release wasn't great and they struggled to find a mascot to rival Mario. They started off with their existing character Alex Kidd, but he underperformed. The successes for Sega started to take off in 1991 with the release of the first Sonic the Hedgehog, along with the more graphic version of Mortal Kombat. Sega of America had their own marketing campaign that was really successful. Remember this? 16-bit arcade graphics. You can't do this on Nintendo Genesis Duds. 16-bit sports action. You can't do this on Nintendo Genesis Duds. Genesis Duds. Genesis Duds. Genesis Duds. Genesis Duds. Get Joe Montana free, Pat Riley free, Buster Douglas free, Super Monaco GP free, or Collins free. Year after year, Genesis was outselling the Super Nintendo, and it seemed that this console was a real hit. However, this is where the downturn for Sega consoles started. The Game Gear, a portable version of the Sega Master System Mark III, was released in 1990. And while it was more powerful than the Game Boy, which was Nintendo's competitor, it had such a limited supply of games and ate through batteries so fast that it wasn't as successful as was hoped. It took three to five hours to burn six AA batteries. Ouch. The Sega CD was an add-on to the Genesis released in 1991. It allowed for games with massive storage, which included full motion videos. This allowed for interactive movie games such as the controversial Night Trap, However, the quality of the videos were quite poor, and the console add-on did not live up to the hype. Next was the 32X. This was a 32-bit machine built to be an add-on to the Genesis, and it was rushed out in order to beat the Atari Jaguar to market in 1994. The rush meant that most launch titles were Genesis ports rather than true 32-bit original titles. It was considered a commercial failure and discontinued in 1996 to focus on production of games for the Sega Saturn instead. 
The Sega Saturn was the true new 32-bit console for Sega. It had some success in Japan, but had a surprise launch in May of 1995, four months prior to its originally planned release date. The release of the Nintendo 64 in 1996 removed most of the market share from the console, and it ceased production in 1998. Another commercial failure for Sega. The last mainline console for Sega would be the Dreamcast. Released in 1999, it was actually a very innovative console. It was the first released in what's known as the sixth console generation, ahead of Sony's PlayStation 2, Nintendo's GameCube, and Microsoft's Xbox. It was the first console with a built-in modem for online play. It had creative peripherals including an LCD screen that could be plugged into the controllers. It spawned innovative games such as Crazy Taxi, Shenmue, Jet Set Radio, and Sonic Adventure. The Dreamcast had initial success in the US market, but by the time the other consoles of this generation arrived, gamers all but forgot about Sega's new machine. Total sales were less than expected, and in 2001, after four years of operating at a massive loss, Sega made the decision to discontinue production of their consoles and to stop making hardware, focusing only on creating software as a third-party developer. It may seem like I'm focusing on the negative here. While I do think that Sega has made their fair share of mistakes over the years, no one can deny that they have a special magic that other developers don't have. Their role in the gaming world, particularly in the 16-bit era with the Genesis, is massive. And it's hard to think of video games without this player as a part of it. Speaking of the Genesis, let's get to today's topic. Sega Genesis Sound Hardware! There are three songs ported straight from the Sega Genesis into Smash Ultimate, all of them from Sonic games. If you listen to this music and compare it side by side with music from the Super Nintendo, for example, you can tell that the sounds used by each console are quite different. Let's pick some music that appears in Smash Ultimate to compare. Once again, we'll listen to Emerald Hill Zone from the Sega Genesis, and following that you'll listen to Red Canyon from F-Zero, composed by Yumiko Kanki for the Super Nintendo. to compare these consoles is to use music from the same game that was ported over the two of them. Probably one of the most ported games of all time is Street Fighter 2, since it rocketed the fighter genre to such a high popularity. To date, it's available on at least 21 different platforms, and some of the first were the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. Let's take Ken's theme and first hear it on the Sega Genesis and then the Super Nintendo.
Now we'll hear that theme switching back and forth every four bars, starting with the Sega Genesis. So why is it that these two consoles sound so different from each other? If you'll remember from our episode where we talk about it, the Super Nintendo's SMP chip had 8 channels for sound output, and each of them were capable of loading 16-bit audio samples. The Sega Genesis has two different sound chips, and both of them work totally differently from the Super Nintendo. The first chip in the Sega Genesis is the Yamaha YM2612. It has six channels of sound, each of which is capable of four operator FM synthesis. If you're confused by that sentence, so was I. Let's break it down. FM synthesis stands for frequency modulation, which means that the different oscillators, or when referring to FM synth, operators, of each channel modify the output of that channel. Each operator can be set to its own frequency. In the YM2612 in particular, the four operators are basic sine waves, but in FM synthesis in general, you could use any type of wave. Typically, each channel would have one operator as the carrier, while the other operators are the modulators that change the final shape of the waveform. The way that all the operators are set up together is referred to as an algorithm. On the Genesis's YM2612, any combination of algorithm was possible. The operators can be connected in a multitude of ways, where in theory the output can be predicted, but in practice, it's really hard to determine how your output will actually sound. Just as an example, I'll show you a recording I made while messing around with a VST called Jenny that emulates the Yamaha YM2612 chip. VST stands for Virtual Studio Technology and can be run in digital audio workstations. The particular sound I used was called 2019 Brass. These first eight clips reflect the change in the algorithm of the operators. For example, the first clip has all operators in series, where operator 1 is the carrier. The second one has the first two operators in parallel, with operators 3 and 4 in series, and operator 1 is the carrier, and so on. It's very hard to describe, and harder still to determine how things are being affected. Next, I hit a few notes repeatedly and changed settings for each operator in Algorithm 1. Settings such as Detune, Frequency, Envelope Scale, LFO, Feedback, and so on to some various effects. There are some other special features of the YM2612 as well. The third of its six channels could be split up so that it could have four separate carriers, meaning it can produce four distinct sine wave tones. Effectively, this adds three channels to your six channel sound chip. You could also bundle the operators in other ways, such as two and two, 
three and one, and so on. The sixth channel is the only channel that can be swapped out to play 8-bit audio samples. Remember that the Super Nintendo's eight channels are all used to play audio samples at 16 bits. This is the reason why these two consoles sound so different. Technically, the YM2612 has a seventh channel that is a low frequency oscillator, or LFO. Low frequency oscillators operate below human hearing levels, meaning below 20 Hz. They are used to further modify the output of other sounds. The LFO would apply to all six channels at the same frequency, but each channel could control how much it was affected by the LFO. One way an LFO could be used is to add vibrato. Here's the amplitude of an LFO at 8 Hz gradually increasing to show how it affects the pitch of a tone waving back and forth. Let's finally talk about the Genesis second sound chip. This was the Texas Instruments SN76489. These are catchy names, I know. The primary reason for adding this second sound chip to the Genesis is so that the console could be backwards compatible with Sega's 8-bit console, the Master System. In order for sound to be outputted from the Master System's cartridges, the games would have to send information to this particular chip to be successful. The chip is very similar to the original Nintendo's sound chip, the Ricoh 2A03. The Master System could produce four channels of sound, three square waves at 50% and one noise channel. A nice secondary bonus of adding this chip was that composers for the Genesis had access to all these channels as well. If you add this together with the Genesis YM2612, the Genesis had access to 10 channels in total, 6 FM synthesis channels, plus those 3 50% square wave channels and noise channel that we talked about. Sound effects would often be relegated to these extra channels, but a lot more could be possible with composing with this combination. In the end, the complexity of FM synthesis has probably resulted in a form of gatekeeping, scaring composers away from what seems like a lot of mathy work in the composition process. Many have argued over which console had the better sound capability, the Super Nintendo or the Genesis. It really comes down to comparing apples and oranges. Do you want instruments that closely resemble their real-world counterparts? Go with the Super Nintendo. Do you want biting synth for more rock and roll soundtracks? Go with the Genesis. Each had their strengths and weaknesses and contribute their part to the gaming world today. I'll leave you with one final piece of music from Smash Bros. Ultimate. This song is taken straight from Sonic Mania, composed by Tiago Lopez, who got the attention from the Sonic Mania team from his retro Sonic covers on YouTube. The composer's intent with the soundtrack was to appeal to modern gamers while also paying homage to the Genesis classics in terms of its sound design. As such, you'll hear both the elements of the YM2612's FM synthesis, as well as some modern touches. This is Lights, Camera, Action, Studiopolis Zone Act 1 from Sonic Mania.
I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast or suggestions of a song or music topic. Leaving a rating or review on your podcasting platform is a great way to share that with me and helps Overtone Warp Zone gain some exposure. You can also email me at overtonewarpzone at gmail.com and you can stay updated on podcast news by following me on social media everywhere at OTWZ Podcast. One last thing for the Sega Genesis episode. Did you know that there were multiple iterations of the Sega Genesis released, each with minute differences in sound quality? If you want to know which one the nerdy game music purists think is the best, have a listen to Retro Audio Podcast, where I got a lot of my research from for this episode. Also, if you want a great layman's explanation of FM synthesis, visit Andrew Huang's YouTube channel. Until next time, keep playing. Keep playing.